And I'm Merlin. And I'm Zinzale. And you're listening to Critics and Kochak. Good morning and welcome to Critics and Kochak. How are you today? I'm great. How are you ladies feeling? I'm feeling good. It's I'm Easter so, Sunday. It is. It is. It is. I'm so excited. I saw a lot of beautiful big hats on the train this morning. <laughs> I didn't wear my mind is on the inside. I'm fully celebrating Easter. So, talk to me about how your week went. What's going on? What'd you do? I I practice a lot of self-care. That's the best way to put it. I practice a lot of self-care. I paid a lot of attention to my body, what my body needed to recuperate, had a lot of rest. So I'm coming into this Sunday very grace, very graceful, very blessed to be here. Yeah. Uh, this week I was wrestling with a lot of big ideas, reading the undercommons and... Um, and also trying to unpack a lot of theory for the first time, really like really using it in relationship to my practice. And so some really heavy duty stuff that I've been kind of wrestling with, but we'll get into more details about that. Yeah. Fred Moten is heavy lifting. Like I always feel like he's like outside of my weight class. You know what I mean? Like I'm really not (laughs) boxing at Fred Moten level yet, but (laughs) <laughs> um, he's a really great endeavor in terms of an intellectual heavyweight. He's a he's a a good person to practice lifting with. Definitely, mm-hmm. I had a hectic week. I was running all around the city. I went to a really great show yesterday at the Bronx Documentary Center. PDC. It was from Mobutu to Beyonce, um, and there were photographs of uh, men and women, you know, documented by this woman Emily Virginie. I'm gonna mispronounce her name because she's French and. Yo, man, I don't. I never do well on those words. Um, but it was a really great vibe, and I'm going to see more of her work. I want to see more of it, um, but I'm excited to share some stuff about that exhibition with you all. I know we have a special guest today, um, so we're really Yay. excited to have somebody in the house, especially somebody who's doing some dope shit. Zen, <laughs> tell me, you know, about this mystery person that we have today <laughs> in the studio. Our mystery person is Alexandra Bell. <laughs> A Brooklyn-based multidisciplinary artist who investigates the complexities of narrative, information, consumption, and perception. I'm really happy to have her. Give her a round. (laughs) Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Good to have you in the house. Thank you. Thank you. How was it getting here today? How's your Sunday so far? Um, You know, it's all right. I I realized it was Easter this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Just this morning? Yeah. You know, just this morning I was out and like you said, I saw a lot of hats and I was, you know, it's, I mean, it's normal on a Sunday. I'm, I'm in the Flatbush kind of area, so I still see a lot of black people. Yes. You get the, yes. do you do good mornings on Sundays with I the do black folks? mornings every day. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I'm from Chicago. You speak to other people when you see it. See, that's, it's different up here. Sometimes you know. get a hello. Sometimes like you get ignored. But maybe that's because you're coming from a place where that's normal, so you necessarily you you probably take the initiative in doing it as well. You sometimes speak to black people, yeah. I don't know if that's a you know I don't know if that's a Chicago thing. I feel like that's I don't know that's what New York people are from the South too. We were saying that that we feel like that only happens on Sundays. We're just oh, like, really? did you get a, yeah. a hello on a well, Sunday? It's slow on Sundays. Everyone yeah. says good morning on Sundays. It's slow, so people aren't in a hurry. People are kind of you know taking their time. What do you do when, when your hello gets, like, when you're, I call it the black nine. What do you do when it gets rejected? When, like, they don't pay attention to I you? I talk shit in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it doesn't happen to me too frequently. Um, sometimes people don't speak back. I think they're surprised, you know. Like, oh, she said hello. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but for the most part, it's a, there's a process. You don't get shut down if you know, if you know the system. You know, you kind of walk in, you kind of make a little eye contact. There's a mutual nod. To hello, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's a kind of in- energy there, I think. When you're lucky, you get a nice conversation out of it, too, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, not all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you on that. 
sometimes it's an unwelcome invitation for conversation. Oh, yes. True. Oh, yes. And they're like, yeah, let me actually tell you about my day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, last week we started, we had a wonderful guest in here. Michael Paul Biddle joined us last week. And we were talking about remixing and repurposing. I know Zen loves that phrase. I remixing do. and repurposing. We said like four times let in the episode, I'm sure. Let me just say why. Because I'm a media literacy person. So I'm all about remixing and repurposing. It literally crosses all genres. It's important to know how to merge these connections. Okay. Continue. Her hands are up. Like, she was, like yes. that was her church just now, guys. I just wanted to let yes. you know. Yes, preaching. Yeah, it was, she was up there. <laughs> <laughs> on the pulpit. Um, but it was good to it was good to start to begin the conversation about how we see pop culture references mm. transformed in visual art media and, and yeah. what the potential for those images uh to do. What does it do in terms of even the sensationality? I know on another episode Murr talked about the competition for the sensational and how we're so inundated with images these days that it's hard to know what effect they have when they are translated in the visual art realm. So talk to us a little bit about how that is starting to affect your practice. It's, I mean, there's this really weird thing where people are talking about, you know, images in the art world as if this is kind of like a new space, right? And like, Mm -hmm. we've been consuming um, this stuff in, you know, in media for a time now, whether through kind of ad advertising spaces right you know if, if you're speaking specifically about a museum or more closed kind of white box space that's one thing but images that we run into in public or in news media or in newspapers that's con- that's constant I actually don't think people really know what the impact is right so some of my work is about trying to get people to kind of slow down and consider more consciously what those encounters mean right and what it means to kind of see an image with words right I'm interested in kind of the, both of them working together for representational purposes. Um, so the newspaper is a, is a good medium for me to do that kind of work. Um, I don't know if that's like completely answering your question, but... We getting there. Yeah, yeah. You get there, right? Yeah. We getting there. We getting there. So I'm really... Because so when I saw your work, um, I was very like uh, intrigued by the, the your decision-making in terms of what gets blocked and how things, how text was transformed to, to subvert things that had other intentions. Yeah. And well, so particularly with the um, the Mike Brown piece. Yeah, the Mike Brown piece. I was piece. like, you know, I'm not famous. Do you even know who I am? <laughs> <laughs> you might want to give him a little preview now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let me describe it yeah. so we could. I'll, I'll do better looking at it and well, describe you just it. name it. I think at this point, yeah. in some closed spaces, maybe people do know the infamous No Angel article from the New York Times, right? That was like we heavily talked about mm-hmm. um, online and online spaces. We talked about that kind of framing, that character framing a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, but um, in regards to censorship, I was wondering when you're when you're making these decisions, are you would you consider yourself censoring or would you be considering yourself kind of uh, transforming or you telling you what to see? Yeah. No, I I think it's pretty bossy. I'm, I'm really uncomfortable with this term censorship applied to individuals, Mm -hmm. right? It's something to me about that word that's, it's been thrown around a lot and I'm not going to bring up that person's name because I don't really want to talk about her work. Oh, snap. We know. We, I think we do. I I don't know. (laughs) I I think, oh, Dana. Yep. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry, my bad. Yeah. Um, we know. No, but I mean, I, but <laughs> it is something it. that I feel like is thrown around a lot, and I, I think we should kind of trouble the way that that phrase is being used, particularly when it's thrown at black people. I mean, oh yeah, talking about black people censoring people is is, is hilarious. But um, the Mike Brown piece, I mean, the decision was made over a series of reads of the article, right? And so the part that isn't in public that may be used in a kind of more museum or closed space is annotated where I'm kind of like walking through the text and I'm making markings on it. It's some of them could be read as edits and some of them could be read as just kind of me having a conversation with a, with a work. Um, and part of what I'm kind of teasing out is that, you know, I understand journalism. I get that, you know, you know, I went to school for it. So I understand the newspaper and the layout and issues of objectivity there's something wrong with the decision to put a kid and a cop parallel, like, you know, adjacent to one another, mm-hmm. equal space. Cop's article comes first. Um, half of his article isn't even about Mike Brown. It's about the last black guy he arrested, like half of the first part of it. That's on the front page. So 
um, at the end, and I think the argument that I just found myself in a lot, if I ever get caught up in some comment trolls, is that you have a kid and a cop. You have a cop that killed an unarmed kid. You have a kid who died, right? And so that's really what I wanted to leave. Um, yeah, and then the redo of it, you know, that in some ways was really kind of imagining if newspapers were more, you know, they're not supposed to be advocacy basis, right? They're not supposed mm -hmm. to advocate for either person, but to really think about imagining what it would be like as a black person to be represented in the, in the newspaper with a little bit more dignity. And so that's kind of how that last one came about. And the image choice, the graduation image choice, I mean, if we want to talk about images and representation, um, I really feel like people can't see black people as kids. They can't. I agree with you. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And so there was there were other images of particularly of black, black men. Yeah, right? you know, yeah. there are other images of of Mike Brown. There's one with he has headphones on where to me he mm -hmm. looks pretty youthful. I, I think my concern was is that there are so many other biases that come into play when we're looking at black people and black bodies that I thought if I put the graduation image there, it's such a rite of passage for so many people that mm -hmm. means so many different things that that would come into play as well and kind of like maybe negate some of that negative urge. Um, but yeah, it wasn't without some difficulty that I picked that picked that image. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I think it's really interesting that you mentioned how black children aren't allowed to be to be perceived or seen as children. I think it's something also that is tied with the idea of like the imagination and like when is this time in a child's life that they have to stop imagining because they have to take on these roles, these adult like roles, which brings me towards the question of like I think what you're kind of hinting at is like epistemology the idea of like how do we believe what we believe and like what how do we create like our opinions about what we're consuming epistemology Epis okay thank you epistemology oh, I pulled yes. it up just to make sure I said it right and then I said it wrong oh, yeah. but um how do we know that what we're receiving or or actually consuming is true and I think that even what I see like on your Instagram page when you're bringing these frameworks into question, this role of accountability. So I wanted to know if you could expand a little bit more on that, not just with um, news media outlets, but also like us as consumers. As readers, yeah. yeah. Yeah, as well as like art and museum spaces. But I, w I just want to, can you define epistemology, please? Okay. Just so in so case I'm... <laughs> oh, no, no, you're right. <laughs> yes, thank you. Okay. Keep it simple. What happened when y'all don't keep it simple? Really now y'all talking like art. <laughs> <laughs> keep it simple. Well, she you said know. Of a <laughs> All right. All right. So it's a form of knowledge making. Yeah, right? basically. And it's a form of understanding the ways that we create what is truth, what is knowledge. Um, and... And the way we we align something with belief, like I believe that I believe this to be true because of this visual, these 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 words that are aligned with something. Talk to me. You said uh, it sounds too much like art. We we have that debate back and forth a yes. lot on the show, particularly because. So we'll wrap this into your conversations about the reader's accountability. What is also uh, the platform or the people that are creating media's accountability? in communicating in a language that is accessible, right? Maybe that's also, but you can use your journalistic... Right? Like the papers are accessible, right? I mean, I don't think that what are, what we are reading or what are in paper, I don't think it's it's not accessible. It's, it's probably too accessible, right? It's, it's, it permeates a lot of our thinking in ways that we don't know. Um, and I think, you know, some of the work that's done by newspapers to kind of push forth certain biases and some of the laziness on the reader's account, those things kind of kind of combine for mm -hmm. kind of, a, they're not the only two things that are happening, right? This is kind of multidimensional. There's so many things that go into how we um, consume media and then how we kind of then act upon the things that we read, right? Um, we read and we see. I think my work in terms of looking at newspapers is trying to find a way to, to challenge what we're seeing. You know, newspapers, I mean, the history of journalism is it's dirty. I mean, if we're, mm -hmm. you know, any structure in the in the U.S., any structure for the most part is in, inherently anti-black, right? And so, how do we move forward with that as a with that? That's the structure. That's the framework of, of newspapers, right? How do we, given take into account that history in a way that we look at what we're reading, the way we think about it, and then the way we write about it, right? And so, if you have a clear history understanding of like black people and black bodies, that should 
kind of shake up the way you frame things. You, I don't know if it's just about objectivity. There are all these other things that inform the way that's going to be seen, who gets the front page, who gets the colored ink. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things matter to me. I mean, New York Times, for instance, some of the reporting they did around the pipeline protests to me also kind of fell into that space. The right? Dakota you know, Access Pipeline. Yeah, yeah. access. They, they had the Bundy brothers. You know, they were our occupiers. There's language shifting, you know, around that. They're occupiers versus protesters. Um, Bundy brothers kind of had the front page of the national sections. That was, you know, in color. Um, the protesters um, for the Dakota Access Pipeline had the page behind them that was in black and white. So I think those decisions, they matter in terms of what we assign you know, as important. I wanted to go back to the idea of black boyhood um, and the ability for our imagination to comprehend what black youth looks like, or even that being a space of innocence. And then, of course, Merlin bringing in the, the link and the beautiful images you shared with us, the John Edmonds images, how can we better understand boyhood or infancy in our representations, not just of the imagery and the way that we talk about young black male contribution, right? Um, and I think, Alexandra, for you, this will mean also kind of the translation from the journalistic endeavor into an artistic one. Mm-hmm. How have you pulled that out? For her, this will mean um, pulling this out in your painting and in your figuration Present this will mean the type of media that you share, but how do we do that in in ways that um, capture the imagination that we're trying to produce? You mean our ability to see the imaginations of the the, the subjects? Sorry. I mean, I mean, John Edmonds' work is really important to me because it's about it's about visibility and invisibility, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're looking at this thing, but you you you're looking at this person, but you can't you can't see them, and I think that's a lot of the ways that Black people move through the world you know we're really we're the most visible invisible people in the world right and so um his his work is I mean my work is definitely really kind of on the nose at least the stuff that I've put in public in some ways it needs to be right um and his work is more challenging I think in 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 a in a sense of really confronting your own bias like you're 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 looking at a someone in a hood if i if i can talk about his hood series right um this is a person you can't see um and there's a lot of work that needs to be done to try to see them um and if you can't see them what are you left with right and and if what you're left with says a certain thing that says a certain thing about you right and so there's um there's work for me and that's one of the things that i really appreciate about the hood series um when we think also about these really simple symbols right these things have become symbols right it's a hood right Mm -hmm. this is a huge deal though Mm -hmm. now i'm considering trayvon martin but also the purpose of a hood right to you know when you're in a mode where you want to wear one either for practical reasons you're cold or because you kind of do want to be hidden um i don't know there's something to me that resonates about that and it What's interesting is that when I chose the Mike Brown image, um, some of the debates that emerged, like on Twitter or like online, people were sending me photos they thought I should use. Like white folks were seriously sending <laughs> oh, me no. photos of like him throwing up his middle finger or one with his, his like hat turned to the side. And it's really amazing how when you take these really minor everyday things, objects, clothes and you put them on black people, they produce all of this kind of like definition. Um, and so that um, is really interesting to me in terms of you know, how, I, how, I, how I think about kind of visual stuff. I still think it's really hard to see black people as just folks, just people, right? Um, but yeah. Well, in my work, um, I've been all often very fascinated with the imagination, the perception, and its consequences um, when you have a hood and all those biases that come with being a hooded person in black or um, just the constant, um, the fact that there's so much fear around blackness or black bodies I'm fi- I'm finding that there's a uh, there's this automatic 
um, risk of being destroyed because of that fear. And in my work, dealing with the visibility and invisibility, like what you're talking about, I'm always picking up symbols, um, especially just from my upbringing, kind of growing up in a, as a as a floral designer. So I'm at weddings, I'm at funerals. Um, and flowers became this symbol that's omnipresent, that's there when we're celebrating, that's there when we're mourning. Um, and the images that come out come out of that though you know we have our immediate perception of what a wedding is and what a funeral is um when i'm translating uh well i'm not i'm not necessarily thinking about youth which is something that's i'm still kind of toiling with while i was as we're having this conversation but thinking about symbols and the ordinary things and how it's how we how i decide as an artist to transform it a lot of the time I feel like I'm going against or trying to interrogate the, the imagination about blackness um, and, and, and that fear around blackness. But, and, and I don't know if I'm making an assumption, but I just feel like when, when a lot of these things happen, it's this, I felt like my life was in danger. And when I say these things happen, when, when black boys and girls are being murdered, I feel like there's this, I, I felt that my life was endangered, and if I have to pick between you and me, I'm going to pick me. Mm-hmm. And because it's a very emotional topic for me, just thinking about my work and my practice and toiling with these images. But I think right now, as we're having this conversation, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about ways to, to kind of push outside of just the imagination about blackness and move into uh in a, in a negative sense and move into that conversation about youth and 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 happiness the sunny side is, is what um we talked about with Fred Moten but yeah so to build off of that I think a lot of times I'm thinking a lot about the power of association um and the, ho- the historical context that lays between um language and visuals and what happens scholar scholar in residence no. what is the power of association all right so the power of association <laughs> thank you for asking that question is pretty much when we see an image when we see images attached to that what is the first thing that comes to mind right like what feeling does it evoke for me that's how i i i use it um when when you I hate to even. All right, I'll I'll use a brand. Um, when you see Nike, you automatically think like just do it, and then you also may think about like uh, child slavery and this idea of this production of of these of Nikes, depending on which spectrum you're or which social location you're you're looking at, like where you're grounded, what you know. Um, so when I think about the imagination in regards to that, I, I really think about the power of association, this idea of imagination, primarily not being linked to us as people of color, not being able, allowed to like dream. So while I was on this self-care break, I found myself looking at Roots to Next Generation. Yes, my friends clowned me um, for doing that. But more Wait, s- what? what? Roots, the next generation. Have you watched that? I was having a moment. I, nah. No. I, was, I, was, I had enough with the first one. I, <laughs> see, that's the thing. I agree with you. So I've never seen Wait, it before. Wait, this is next generation yeah. of Roots? Like the Power Rangers next generation? Yes. Okay, I don't even. Okay, Where yes. is it? Is, it on F- is this on FX? No. Okay, so this was like in the 1970s. Oh, so, I'm so sorry. I thought no, this no, was no. new. So, nope, it's not. And it's not the remake, but um, it's another. So it's a sequel to the Roots. original Roots. Yes, with with ones that we all know, right? The those. Yes. Okay, so it's yes. a, it's a follow up to that original. <laughs> it. So it is. It is. It is like the. It's not a slur. No, it is from the second to like seventh generation to where like Alex Haley, like his family, grounded in a. Uh, Henning, Tennessee, and literally every generation has a, a mini episode, which is oh, like an hour okay. and a half series, which is equated. Who to gave you that? One of the final call no! guys that gave Let me, me the, the paper so this morning. No, 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 no. Um, no, I don't know. I, I've always been really interested in like our history, primarily around that time, and like how we how imagination is linked to our people, and like if if we're allowed to dream. I've just always been interested in that. Anyway, it brings me. Nope. I know, right? Exactly. It brings me to this scene where you see all these black men being, you know, these black women actually having to push their own dreams aside to uplift and uphold the black man. But historically speaking, the people who are from the enslavement times, 
they can't even see they can't even see past that to actually have a dream they're just like this is how it's always been this is how it's always going to be so when i think about the power of association i wonder how the historical context context has been grounded the meaning that's been pushed upon them it's so hard to fight through that representation and i'm wondering i guess like how do we how do we push through that I think we're entering in a point right now where you could look at Roots and you can finally look at it in a critical lens. Like, I can, I don't know if I would have consumed this when I was, like, in the 90s if I would have been able to see this. I know I wouldn't have. But how these relationships are playing on this idea of imagination and representation, that's an old landscape. That's a traditional narrative that, thankfully, we've been able to debunk and demystify, pull back the curtain and say, these are the layers that lay within between these representations. So two things. Yeah. Mm, you're talking about a lot here. I mm. know. I realized that as I was saying. We I was got like, a lot. This is how my mind runs, y'all. Stream <laughs> of consciousness. Yeah, we got, a lot, we got a lot to unpack. Uh, the first thing that I'm thinking about when you were talking, uh, particularly the romanticization of Africa and the black imagination and the uh, ideas of Africa as a place of... Um, a heavenland, a nirvana, a yeah. place of finally arriving to. Um, so that's one box, right? Understanding the parts within our communication of the black dream, the things that we consume in our own community, understanding the parts of that dream that are way too off, right? Under mm-hmm. Understanding the parts of the dream that are not at all close to what is actually reality. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is also... Supporting the type of work that looks like the dream, right? So when we look at the John Edmonds piece and he's featuring the men in do-rags, and these are also, I would assume, young men, right? I don't really associate do-rags with older black men. I associate do-rags with young black men who are like, you, I need to keep my ways 360, so I'm going to put on this do-rag and wear it through school. Um, and I saw, immediately seeing those images, I thought of Shai Keith. He, I met recently at the Yale MFA show, Um, a few weeks ago and his images of like black men dreaming or um, black men kind of moving and and having their bodies collide with one another. So I thought about how to push forth ideas in our imagination that represent what that other place looks like that you're talking about. So if there are parts of our imagination that aren't sufficient to our dreams, who are the artists? Who are the... um, communicators who are the curators that are getting us giving us images that is over that hump um and that's what i want to see more of if that's a black queer aesthetic that's what i want to see more of Mm -hmm. Uh, those are the two things that uh that came to me what do you think i mean it's weird i don't i think we're talking about this as if it's a place where we're trying to go to to in some ways and i think in some of our some of our private spaces we might already be there right Mm -hmm. and it's about making those images and those ideas more widespread um, and doing some of the, the deconstruction work that mm-hmm. needs to be done in the public space. Because I, I look at Shaki's work and, I mean, John Edmonds' work as well as kind of deconstructing masculinity, at least as we kind of see it as kind of like, you know, hard, kind of rough kind of space. And I, I, I imagine that a lot of men, gay you know, queer men that I know have in some ways carved out, hopefully, right, um, a space that's um, a little more compassionate, right, um, in their private lives, right? And so, um, and I don't think a lot of people know about those spaces. Um, I don't think some people know they exist. Um, so I think a, a lot of the work is is in telling those stories. So, yeah, I mean, I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's work isn't telling those stories but I, I think the way to get that out there is just to kind of really kind of honor your perspectives when you do work um and push that forward so you know my perspective emerged in some ways in a, a you know more white journalism training space columbia journalism yes yeah where we were talking <laughs> legacy lo- right we were talking a lot about um you know the right way to write the the correct mm-hmm. way to, the correct way to to you know produce stories <laughs> and um how you structure them and who you ask for information and you know and I, on his face it's 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 legit right um but even within that there's this kind of reproduction of things that i don't think other people could see you know i wasn't necessarily i'm not, admittedly not in class being like but wait um but as a reader right as a 
colored as a black person reading the paper every day it's like the diaspora is in trouble um <laughs> and so when people were reading for structure and I, I was doing that as well, but I was also trying to figure out how to survive the right. paper, right? Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. As an experience. And so, yeah, as an experience, as a, as a personal experience. Um, and so it was really important for me to try to figure out a way to, to talk about, kind of deconstruct that experience, kind of imagine that I wasn't alone in that experience, um, and do work that I, th- that I, you know, I thought spoke to that. And I have to admit, I was nervous um, as to whether or not it would kind of make sense to people. Like, it makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I wanted to, you know, I I didn't, I, you know, I think there's been a lot of interest in it, even beyond the Mike Brown thing, which has been great, because I thought at first it was going to really, you know, he's, he's like an icon at mm-hmm. this point, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think the work is in whatever, whatever you whatever you bring to a space we see things differently based on our experiences Mm -hmm. right and so whatever that is that you are seeing that may feel different or isolating um, I think the work is in is in putting putting that forth for for other people to share in Um, and that's that's kind of that's where the journalism thing and the art thing kind of collided for me that the experience that I was having was so much both about words and visual I was trying to find the best way to kind of communicate that I didn't really think it was a paper Mm -hmm. it was something I could write yeah. So that brings me to my next question. Why now? So your pieces have been surfacing <laughs> all around. No, 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 not why even. Now? Well, why now? Because I know. Hmm. Yeah, just why now? Why now? I mean, it's that. That's a. It's a combination of personal and external factors, right? And some of it is about kind of getting to this place personally, where I was like, okay, I need to just do this, right? I've been talking about it a lot. I've been playing with it, and. Um, it just really started to kind of come together, you know, me working on it and exactly how I wanted to approach it started to kind of coalesce. And so that's part of it. Um, I think also, like most people, you know, election time, energy around even pre-election, we're all like, you know, we, I mean, I think colored folks were already in, like, gay colored folks, if I could speak for my people. I mean, we were already like, shit, every day, like, oh, shit, you know. Um, and then it was like, oh, shit. Like, even white people scared. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think, when you, you know, it's, it's like, it's funny, but it's also kind of like when you, when you get to that place, you know you're in trouble because the people at the margins have already been suffering. So if we've already got to the, if we get to the center and yeah. it's a mess, it's, it's, it's you know, it's going to be chaos. Um, so I, I think I was trying to find a way to use some of that momentum and urgency um, and so that's part of it. I didn't feel like it was a time that I could just kind of really think through it. I was like, okay, put it out there, um, you know, engage, you know, engage people about it, and then just kind of work on it. I, you know, damn, trying to get it to this kind of perfect place. Like, just mm-hmm. go forward and then see, see what happens. Um, yeah. And so I'm listening to you, and I'm really excited because I'm, I have this so much going on in my head right now, but. Okay, so this is, yeah. Uh-oh. Oh, shit. <laughs> it's going to be a 10 Epistemology. <laughs> but, you know, look. I got no big words for you. Hey, don't, don't be saying no epistemology. I ain't got it. Power of association. I'm probably going to cross it out anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep teasing you. Sir. I am but, who I am. I'm working on it. <laughs> but, okay, so... I had the honor of having Rocky to send me this email with this link where there was a conversation. The honor. You heard that? <laughs> the friends. Thank you. Well, there was a conversation with Fred Moten and Sadia Hartman, and it was talking about the black outdoors. And something that he mentioned, which is resonating with me as you're talking, is the apparatus that we understand that we're depending on to articulate things through language is, is being insufficient. And... When thinking about you making that transition, you're talking about journalism mm-hmm. and you're also working, having a visual arts practice. Do you feel in some ways your, your need to create things visually is in a response to that being insufficient language? Language being insufficient? It, well, in, in, in the journalistic... In a, in a, you mean in the words? In the, in the machine of journalism that we okay. know today, yeah. Because um, images are, are language. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't, I, I, I'm not scratch. I'm not like, you know, I, I think the words are, 
language is important. I think uh, pairing mm -hmm. them is important. Um, I think there are some limits to it. I don't, I don't know the reference so well, so yeah. I don't want to speak to it so much. I do know Sadia Hartman's work on memory, though. I, I love her. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I mean, I think it's about trying to tease out the information that's in the language that's mm -hmm. already present, at least for the work that I'm doing, right? There's something already being said. A Teenager with Promise is in the title of the original article. I didn't make that up, right? Having said that, in the Ryan Lochte one, I do think that there is an absence of language around white criminality, right? And so with the other one that I had to, to work on, which is the headline, um, is about the kind of Rio robbery, and underneath it, it has the Usain Bolt photo. Um, in the, the redo of that, I had to create language to describe white crime, right? There is a dearth language mm -hmm. present to to name certain things to name um, to name whiteness right um, and that was important to me to kind of kind of construct and it's it's not deep it's a really kind of simple title it's like you did some shit <laughs> <laughs> you lied um, but it is important right it's important for me to kind of combine that with the visual I don't think that um, because newspapers aren't just words yeah right and so I think there's this kind of expectation because um, I was trained in journalism that that's the one thing that I'm supposed to rely on the most. Um, but it's that's not how we take in news. Definitely not now. Yeah. You know, definitely not now. Um, you, if you look at, you know, papers have increasingly relied on images, and people who are de you know consume online, you're, you're looking at photo essays, you're looking at all kind of things um, that are combining two types of languages um, and so I, my work is I mean I don't I don't want to say it's it's absent I don't know I have to look at that Fred. I have to listen to that Fred Moten yo it's some serious shit guys listen <laughs> I was supposed to send me this link you know that right yes I didn't get the link in time here's what I'm referencing Sadia Hartman on the fly she eyeing me I didn't get in time to send it to you we thought you were gonna be on your epistemology um no, but the thing about the Fred Moten piece that we, I'm gonna happy to send you and happy to share no, with really, you. I want to hear that. Yeah. It's so yes. dope. And like what he's saying, and I think the thing that makes me so excited about your work is when you're talking about the newspaper as an experience. Those are very different things for someone who is not like from a journalistic background, right? And so I'm excited to see what your annotations and your notes look like and how you experience the newspaper as not just a reader, but as someone who is like moving through it as an atmosphere to try to understand yourself. And yeah, I think what yeah. Fred would say is that very much so that she's refused her options, right? And so the options for you and what Merlin is trying to pull out and that piece really talks about is that like uh, the options were to continue in a paradigm that said journalism was this particular way or to, or to create in a paradigm that said that visual arts was this particular way. And what is exciting about this magic and this space in between, Derek Bell will call it like Afro-Lantica, it's this liminary, imaginary space that isn't quite anything, is the opportunity for us to understand ourselves better from that refusal. That's the undercommons, right? Yeah. Is when I said no to those things that I've been taught about what good stories are or what good art is, what did I make? What language, what new language did I use to express myself? Yeah. That's exciting as yeah. hell. Yeah, yes. it is. I mean, a lot of it is about refusal, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you're just taking in all this, you're consuming all this stuff, and you're not contending with it at all, it's a dangerous place to be. It's really interesting. I was in Bushwick the other day, and I walked past um, a wheat paste of the Mike Brown. It, it was like two two of them close together and people were reading it. And it's um it's interesting because when I see people sometimes argue with it or mm. or even people who maybe have defaced it, um, I think my question is, are you upset that I'm telling you what you read and believed might be problematic, right? Like is the is that difficult for you to imagine that you consumed something, you went on your merry way and then somebody's like, Oh, come back here. Mm -hmm. and look at it again, right? And so um, I was speaking with somebody in the in the Mike Brown article. What's really interesting is, um, and it's, you know, I, somebody originally thought that I redacted everything that wasn't true. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. New York Times, come on. Yeah. Now. They, they, they're writing, they're doing their work, right? But, you know, in the, in the Mike Brown No Angel part of the article, 
there was stuff that said, you know, he um, took up rapping and he, <laughs> he, you know, he took up mar- um, drugs and alcohol. And I was like, you know, in the annotations, I like circle drugs. And I'm like, what kind? Like, yeah. you know, like mm-hmm. the, the question yeah. is kind of like, where, where are there gaps? Like, was he using heroin or was he smoking weed? And like, mm-hmm. even then, does it still matter? Right. Um, mm-hmm. but even what type of rapping? But no, but does it matter? But exactly. And so, I mean, <laughs> but the reason I did that is because I want people to pause around that to yeah. consider what you might be thinking and how that's supposed to inform somehow that this might have been something he could have avoided or mm-hmm. was his fault. And so that was kind of, I mean, the, the annotations for me were, it really was about trying to like slow down, trying to really think about what was being said to me. And even on the Darren Wilson side, I mean, the first part of it was about this black guy that he arrested in, I guess, the year before, which was 2013, um, that he had kind of gone to the neighborhood and gotten some call, and then he just took it upon himself to, like, wrestle this guy down. It was clearly, like, this Superman moment. Savior moment, too? (laughs) I guess, if you're, you know. And so the, the photo that's actually in the paper is a still image from a video of when he had gotten an award for that kind of arrest right um and so there's this accolade attached to kind of stopping black people you know um and you know i i i really kind of highlighted that because i'm like that is kind of what leads to this kind of hyper policing right if all of your awards and all the things that relate to your position are in response to you being kind of to you kind of harming and stalking me and coming to my neighborhood i don't know it's a it's it's been a really interesting thing to have some conversations with people, um, black and white and old and young, about about that article. Opinions have varied. <laughs> yeah. Zen, what are you thinking yeah, about training. the spaces, the spaces that we need to pause around a little bit more? I'm thinking about um, as you were talking, Alexandria, about the upset and the anger around having to rethink what you were certain about. Mm-hmm. What are spaces of pause that we're taking for granted and I I want you to I'm going to volley it back to what you said about black women um, giving up their dreams Mm -hmm. for black men you said that earlier while we were talking yeah I went on my little little tangent just trying to merge some connections with some um, historical uh, film work Um, I don't know what I'm really thinking about which I think it ties into a lot is like this idea of um, being visually and like media literate and like what is i like what is the artist's role in that and like how do we like even on this podcast make our audience aware of like this if we're if we're honing in on the conversations that alex has been having with people who have been consuming her artwork how do we hone in on how the audience can decipher between or the questions that they should be asking when they're looking at this work like how do we how do we make our audiences like more visually and media literate, which is broad? I mean, we're fighting the behemoth of Instagram. Number one, you can like, use Instagram though. What'd you say? You can use it. Yeah, yeah you can I'll use it. Don't be selfie crazy. That's what I mm. want to see someone like. I want to see someone do it in a way that like distracts me from looking at pictures of French bulldogs. You know. That's all my Instagram is about. But you know what? I think uh, this is where we, you know, come in also. I'm going to get you, Rocky, out to you put it out there. (laughs) It's kind of where you come in with, I guess, the personal responsibility too, right? Like, so if this is this world that you want for yourself Mm -hmm. so bad, right, you kind of, you do have to work for it because it's not, it's not, it's not set up for you that way already, right? It's it's not. So it's a lot of, there's a, it's a lot of work. I mean, I want to just read the paper too, right? (laughs) But I also don't want to be outside and see somebody in the hood and scream and run down the street. Like, I want to I wanna have s- something to fight back against kind of my own bias. And, uh, and you, ha- you, have to, you have to do that work. You know, I, I was at a dinner last night, and I was talking about when I first moved to New York and that, um, you know, which was like 12 years ago. Um, but up until then, you know, and I was, I was out in Chicago, but, you know, I kind of came out as in gay in Chicago. And so... When I moved to New York, though, I started working at a gay organization, gay and lesbian organization. And it was, like, my first real time really working closely with trans trans folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and prior to that, though, I realized that, like, my only understanding of any kind of, like, alternative, like, sexuality or differences or, like, it was all about, like, 
Chenene. And like these caricatures. And it was a lot of work for me to, I had to be checked a lot. And like, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not a hateful person, I, you know, but I definitely didn't understand difference in ways that I should understand mm-hmm. difference. Or, and it's, I think your best work comes from doing that work. I'm, I, I, I'm not going to try to quote Audre Lorde, but it's like, you know, you need to dig deep for like where your own differences and biases lay and do that work and that's um, I think part of the problem that we have now with change is that so many people are trying to say that they're not the person who has bias I'm not that I don't feel like that I don't think that way I don't have these these um, feelings and lucky luckily for me I've always had community space where we could kind of challenge each other around some of our ideas um, and our beliefs and our ignorances, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the same time, I was working at a syringe exchange, and you could not get me to be like, people should be using drugs and we should be giving them access to things. But I, but I had to learn and kind of be educated about how that, how that, how that takes place, how it's, how it helps. And, and if people didn't want to stop drugs, what is that? Who am I to say you don't have a right to these other things in life because you you use you use drugs? Like mm-hmm. I mean, so work is there is work in kind of peeling that stuff back, and so. In the same sense, I would say you also need to move from the part of you that really does want to enjoy those French bulldogs and, like, move towards some of kind of the the stuff that you might have to seek out a little bit more. I mean, and then we'll do the work, I guess, of trying to make it more readily available, which is some of what I'm trying to be about. But, yeah, I don't, I don't, I've had to grow in some ways that, from where I am now, mm-hmm. it's kind of embarrassing to look back on it. But it is part of my story, mm-hmm. right? It's part of my narrative as a person. Um, and that's that's part of how I think people need to approach the information that comes to them, mm-hmm. right? Once you once you can know and see where that stuff comes from, hopefully you can get your ass beat when you first right. figure right. it out, right? <laughs> but, I mean, and luckily, luckily for me, I, I didn't. You know, I worked, I, um, when I got here, I was working at the Audre Lorde Project. Um, my immediate supervisor was trans male. My... Um, uh, my my other supervisor was a trans woman. You know, we had like intense conversations, and they were really compassionate. Right. Uh, and and I don't I don't even think they had to do that work. They mm-hmm. took it upon themselves. They they don't, you, I don't think we have to make anybody ourselves available to explain ourselves to anybody, right? But mm-hmm. they they I was lucky for that um, sacrifice. Um, and even same thing, you know, with the syringe exchange work. You know, I went and I was able to sit and speak to people who were active drug users. Um, and to and we worked together to create some really dope programs that got housing for them, got furniture for you know active drug users. The stuff that you, that a lot of these programs out here are giving free furniture. I feel like IKEA is one of them. Don't quote me on that one. <laughs> um, but there are restrictions on who they'll give items to, right? Yeah. So um, yeah, it's 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 all in the work, and that stuff is those are things that I had to like seek out, mm-hmm. um, and I. You know, I know they made me limited to have certain viewpoints, and so they don't—they're not there anymore. But I try to approach everything where I feel like I'm going into something with like these really intense holds on mm-hmm. with that kind of openness, right? And mm-hmm. so that's my question: These people who are sending me Mike Brown photos with him sticking Bruh. up his middle finger, being like, "Put that photo up there," and I'm like, um, "Don't no. police my right to choose which photo I put up there." But, but there's. But there's some there's a need to hold yeah. on to that, mm-hmm. and there's a need to hold on to this idea that a kid flicking off the camera should be shot. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. a black mm-hmm. kid anyway, because mm-hmm. I you can find some photos of me throwing up the middle finger. I mean, shit, there's like four poses you can make when somebody yeah. snaps a picture <laughs> of you. You can you can squat, you could throw up a peace sign, you could throw up a middle finger, and then you can cross your arms like yeah. you're a corporate person. Like there's like there's not that many poses. So I mean, come on, um, but. But yeah, I mean, I think it's. I think the work is, it's t- it's twofold. I hold newspapers, and you know, I hate to say the media, but I'm just gonna say it that way. Um, more accountable because it's a that's an entire damn system, yeah. right? But individually, there is work. You need to repass the title. Sixty mm-hmm. percent, um, right? Yeah, you need to repass the title. You need to think about what biases you take in or what you read. You need to think about who. Who has to do the work to show themselves as, like, good victims, right? So you have to think about those things when you look at the paper. Um, what's on the front page, you know? And it's a lot to tease out, but it's 
it's really critical in some ways. Even if you a fraction of the time you kind of you do that, I think it can impact. You know, at least and it's good for you too because they talking about your ass. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, <laughs> the critical thinking is definitely a part of it that is important and I think it's it's our responsibility back to the question that you ask it's our responsibility to ask the questions that can allow people to think critically right mm-hmm. so yeah I can still look at pictures of French bulldogs mm-hmm. and I can be <laughs> I can be honest if about that part of my true, preference you're right I just said that we should accept people I can do that <laughs> and then we kind of put you out there like I could do that but That's I also true. want us to create a space that is more accepting of that nuance and maybe nuance is not the right word but when we reach a level of consciousness share the the levels that it took to get to even this particular destination in our thinking. One that came from asking a lot of dumb questions, that came from being checked, that came from being laughed at, that came from sounding biased, that came from, you know, sharing all of the things that people told you were right. Share those things as a part of the consciousness journey, right? As opposed to, I arrived at the destination, now I'm badass and I know what, you know what to say about everything they're giving me the mark though they're giving the mark they're giving me the mark okay uh, we're gonna wrap turn around he's not doing nothing he was doing it okay we're gonna wrap we're gonna wrap (laughs) before we go though of course we always say you know where we're gonna be checking our code things that we're looking forward to um ideas or events or people that we're gonna be meeting so i'll start it off um i'm really excited because the spring means that there's more live music um more outdoor music experiences i'm gonna be seeing Marjorie Elliott at the Sugar Hill Museum. She's been doing like Sunday, standing Sunday performances in her home in Harlem. And she's finally going to be at the Sugar Hill Museum next week. So I'm going to be checking my coat at Marjorie's piano. How about you? I'll be checking my coat uh, at Bill Gaskin. He's coming to Pratt again uh, Wednesday, April 19th. To give a talk about the Dana Schutz piece um, Ooh, and kind of give. I know that who's trying to be named. I know. Yes, no. <laughs> Beep. But we'll it's out. an opportunity for press students to kind of ask the questions. They probably get checked um, around this piece and, and the controversy around it. Yeah. I'm. I'm actually. I'm checking my code on more self care. Alex, are you checking your code anywhere? <laughs> You know what? I might be with you on that one. I might be checking it just right on my coat hook. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, Bill Gaskins, man. I love that man. I'm actually probably, I might be at that. So yes. I'm not going to be on the stage, but I might, <laughs> no. I might be there listening to you guys get handed something. <laughs> that would be he's great. Gonna bring it. It's going to be church. He's I know. Uh, thank you for listening. If you have any feedback for us, please send it at feedback at criticandcoatcheck.com. Also, check us out on Instagram at CIC Art Pod. Thank you so much, Alexandra. It was a fruitful, wonderful conversation. Yes. Woo! Um, she gave us life. We're going to be back with you guys next week, so tune in. Thank you for joining us. Peace. Peace.